All right, hello everybody. My name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and I'm gonna be walking you through the February edition of the Natural Wine Club. Uh, today in the quote-unquote studio, uh, we have Costa, winemaker and proprietor of Rigor and Whimsy. He made one of the wines in today's wine club, uh, and he'll be tasting the wines uh, alongside of us. Uh, Mark Couillard, uh, other co-owner of Juice Imports, is also in the background. Uh, we're not sure if he's going to speak yet, but we'll see. We'll, we'll find out. He'll find a glass and get to taste things as well, I guess. So, uh, Cool. So, I don't know. Costa, do you want to introduce yourselves just so people know what you sound like? And Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, and hello, everybody out there. My name is Costa. I'm co-owner of Rigor and Whimsy with my wife, Jody. And uh, now you know what my voice sounds like. So. Uh, don't don't want it to be too jarring when other people randomly start speaking. Just, um, cool. So the first wine we're going to taste today uh, is a little rosé um, from our friends at Populous. This is made by our friends Chant and Diego, um, which is just like an awesome combination of names, I, I would argue. Um, they are in Northern California in Mendocino County um, in Ukiah. Uh, this particular vineyard was planted in the 40s, so these vines are, you know, basically almost 80 years old now, I guess, like somewhere between 70 and 80 years old. Um, this is Carignan that's been farmed organically since inception. It's just people didn't spray the way that they do back then, basically. So, uh, and fortunately, the, the current owners uh, also seem to, uh, you know, agree that it doesn't need to be sprayed. It just needs to be tended appropriately. Um, this is actually farmed by Larry Venturi, who is sort of the mentor of Shanta uh, Diego. Shanta um, Diego, in addition to making wine, they actually do a lot of uh, farming for people. Um, they'll take over sort of sections of very famous vineyards, convert them to biodynamic uh, farming, and uh, then sell off. You know, usually ninety percent of that fruit to to really. Uh, sort of famous winemakers, people like Tegan Pascalacqua, um, who's making some pretty spectacular wines down in California. Uh, the guys like Rajat Parr uh, have bought fruit from them before. Um, again, just really, really amazing people. So they actually learned a lot of their farming practices from Larry Venturi, uh, who's farming this vineyard. So this is kind of like their ode to the guy who taught them how to farm. Um, as mentioned, this is Carignan. Uh, they did whole cluster pressing, meaning that they didn't even destem the grapes. They just put like the whole bunches of grapes that were just picked into uh, into the press, uh, pressed it super gently so that they're not extracting too many of the phenolic compounds. So the qualities that are actually in the grape skins. Um, and then they wild fermented that in a combination of vessels, but mostly in, uh, in stainless steel, um, a little bit in barrel, a little bit in flex tank. Uh, and then everything was aged in, in those vessels as well. Uh, Costa before this admitted to um, being skeptical about rosé oh, as a category. I'm a full-on uh, hater. <laughs> so it's not mince words. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm excited to I don't know again he hear what he thinks because I again. So I'll put I can put my cards on the table before we get into our first sips here. I'm uh, I'll tell almost anybody who's willing to listen that I think there's like maybe three or four rosés in the world that are reliably good. Um, so I was really excited to have a chance to try this uh, and, and, you know, te test my own assumptions. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, this is like absolutely astonishing rosé. Um, and especially for a price to quality ratio, because I, I think that 
I can probably guess some of the rosés that you're you're talking about, those those three or four. And one of them is probably Tompier, um, which is $60 a bottle. So almost yeah. double the, well, yeah, probably on this market now, double the price of this particular wine. And I think that they hit in the same category um, stylistically. Uh, for me, as, as far as tasting notes on this wine, you guys know how much I love giving tasting notes. Uh, <laughs> for me, this is like really has that distinct grapefruit peel quality to it, um, where you're almost getting like the oils from the actual grapefruit peel. You're getting this like pithy, um, almost sort of like satisfying bitter quality, like almost like bitter orange, um, those sort of qualities. So I, I feel like this rose is so tactile. And not only that, but it has this perfect level of reduction um, that brings up this almost like flintiness, this tension to the wine um, that I particularly enjoy uh, in this style. So, Okay, so I've had my first sip and, and I think I might be a fan actually. It's the thing that stands out to me right off the bat is it's incredibly persistent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's a few things that uh, help create greatness in a wine. There's complexity, there's intensity, there's balance. There's lots of ways you can define balance. But kind of, in my view, the kingmaker among all of those things is the length or persistence of the wine. If the flavors are good, you want them to stick around for a while. And uh, there's good flavor here, and it's crazy persistent on the palate. Yeah, it's, you know, my last sip was, was a minute ago now, and it's still basically just as flavorful in my mouth. Um, and again, this is definitely not always the case with rosé. And it's really interesting that now, even though sort of the one of the major styles of rosé from like the 1980s and 1990s have, has basically died out, which is the sweet rosé, um, at least in sort of the, the wine world uh, at large, it's, it's crazy how often people think that rosés are going to be sweet still. Um, and this one is... is uh, very much on the dry end of the spectrum. Uh, I think we're we're at you know barely above zero grams per liter of sugar. Um, and again, this phenolic quality to it, it it actually has texture to it, which mm-hmm. is again something I guess one of the unsung qualities of of really good rose in my opinion. Yeah, I don't know if I'd quite go to like the tempier paradigm for this wine, but certainly it's not that that. What really bothers me about rosé is the really wimpy Provence style mm-hmm. that that's just seems to be all over the place and people are copying it. And and this is also not that. To me, it brings to mind more of like a really good Tavelle. Mm. There's more viscosity. There's It's a bit shyer on the nose, but then on the palate, it really kind of explodes with flavor. And there's, like I said, there's a bit of that phenolic extraction here. And yeah, it's... It's a little darker in color, and yeah, it does. It, it, if, I think if I got this in a blind tasting, I would probably get it wrong and call it Tavel. Mm, nice. Yeah, that's the other thing too is that if you think of the areas in the world that are famous for rosé, I don't think that we would we would say Mendocino County, California. I don't think that'd be in the the top ten no. list of where good rosé comes from. But it just goes to show that if you have a really great fruit source that is giving you the numbers that you need to make a specific wine, so the correct pH, the amount of uh, actual TA, um, the alcohol levels, the 
ripeness at certain levels. If it's giving you all those things, it, it, there's no reason why any region in the world can't make any wine as long as you're getting, uh, you know, the appropriate fruit for making that style. So I think this is a great example of California not being famous for making really great rosé, but in this case, making quite a compelling uh, version of that. Um, production on this wine is just over 400 cases, so super small production. I don't remember how many we got in Alberta, somewhere around 10 cases, 15 cases, something like that. Um, so, and that's for the entire year, so not a lot of wine to go around. Um, and not only that, but it's, we got this wine in winter time. Uh, they hold back their rosé uh, quite a bit longer than, than most people would. So this is 2018 rosé, when really we're already basically seeing 2019 rosés trickle onto the market. Um, usually they're, they're sort of released in spring as a summer wine, but they feel the exact opposite about this. They, they almost release it sort of late summer, early fall, uh, and treat it more like a, a winter rosé, which again seems paradoxical to a lot of people, but I, I think is a, a legitimate style. Um, yeah. So I want to throw a question out to you. Mm -hmm. This seems like a food wine to me. Mm. What do you pair with rosé? What's your go-to pairing for rosé? It's a good question. Um, I think there's a handful of places in the city that do really nice, like, cured salmon. Mm. Um, and that's kind of a favorite of mine. Like, not the, not the like, smoked salmon, but just, like, regular like, cured salmon. Like the, like the Gravlock style? Yeah, kind of, like almost more meaty than that. Like you just like do the, do the whole filet. And then, um, I had a friend who was like coating it in, uh, like a beet vinegar. So it like picked up this nice sort yeah. of like sweet and sour, but I, I feel like texturally this wine almost feels like cured salmon. Like it has that, like that pull to it. Mm -hmm. Um, a little bit of bounce, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of toothsome. Uh, and I feel like both those foods get along really well and, you know, Matching color and color seems to work well with food as well. <laughs> just like pink wines and pink foods, just like this and pork, you know, for instance, I think is a is a great option. But I don't know. What are your what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I might be more in the like pork tenderloin camp. Hmm. Maybe with a little bit of like a gingery sort of like soy sauce ginger something. Yeah, go orange, kind of more Asian. Orange, yeah, something like that. Um, it has great acidity, so I'm seeing it you know, cut through fat. And we're just about to get into my wine, which is a salmon wine. So I don't think I want to like throw <laughs> you salmon. You don't want to double down I don't want to, I don't want to have salmon with both of these wines. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go pork. I'm going to go with like an Asian style pork tenderloin for that. But it certainly cool. to me is not your, not that insipid, like pale patio sipper rosé, which like, frankly, there's just too much of in the world and it's not good. Like this is, yeah, it's serious. Mm -hmm. It's it it's to me it's for food. And, yeah, and it's it's good stuff. And I feel like those insipid rosés too. Like they're they're just so manipulated at this point. Like it's become a reality that people are legitimately uh, charcoal filtering their wines to make them lighter and less flavorful, so that they fit into yeah. that category. So it's like. It, it's kind of like the, the Pinot Grigio paradox or like the vodka paradox. Yeah, where I was going to say, it's like as stupid as vodka. It's like we're like, why, why, would you want, less. why would you want a drink that tastes of nothing? Like that's just, it's the dumbest drink in the world. <laughs> when they made me, you know, both been through the WSEP program and when you're doing like vodka tastings, it's just like, you just want to scream at somebody and be like, this is the <laughs> dumbest thing. Like, let's do yeah. water. Let's be water psalms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, cool. Well, next up, we're going to get into uh, Costa's um, Game, and I feel like you know he can probably do it justice a little bit better than I can. So uh, I feel like you can you talk can a little bit about how I made and, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and, and what it is, and yeah. what, why it is, and sure, all these things. So um, we're in we're in we're in the Okanagan Valley of British Columbia, Canada. Um, and we're actually in the northern part of the Okanagan in, a, in an area called West Kelowna. Um, there, this is an old vineyard also. It's own rooted. Um, it was established organic. The current farming is, is not organic. There are some uh, herbicides used in the spring, which is you know, not philosophically aligned with how we farm or, or what we'd like to see, but currently not something we're able to influence or control. And uh, Gamay is what we have planted on our home vineyard. And I, I felt it was more important for me to begin working with Gamay and getting an understanding for, for it than to deny the, the, the Gamay that was available to me. So um, it is beautiful fruit, you know, just despite the, the uh, philosophical divide on the farming practice. Um, it's interesting soil from a, a, an Okanagan perspective. We've got a preponderance of uh, sand series in the Okanagan that was at one time one big super lake which is now and and so there's a lot of glacial action in the past and and the lakes have receded to their their present size and a lot of what's planted is what was once you know below lake height and, and very young sandy soils where this vineyard sits it's actually just a little bit um north of mount boucherie which is a, a volcanic uh so an igneous rock formation. So we've got decomposing um, like granite in the soil, uh, slightly older soil. So it's decomposed a bit more into um, small amounts of clay and, and uh, a little bit better water holding capacity there, which is, which is really nice. Um, these vines throw a pretty heavy crop. I think that's actually another interesting thing in the Okanagan. You know, we're so far north and we're semi-arid we're hot and it's an, an interesting way to achieve a balance between the sugar ripeness and the phenolic ripeness you know a lot of times in the okanagan there's wines that i'm tasting maybe they're cropped lower they're really ripe from a sugar perspective the alcohol is quite high but you've got bitter and green uh notes in the wine um, here we've got something that's actually really low alcohol. We're sitting at 10% alcohol, but I think we've got mostly ripe flavors in the wine. Um, and so, yeah, the way that we made this was whole cluster semi-carbonic. So we harvested really healthy fruit in 2018, which gave us a lot of confidence to do this kind of riskier style of fermentation. We put a bit of fruit in the bottom of the fermenter and got in and crushed it with our feet. So we had about say about five or, or seven centimeters of juice released on the bottom of the tank and then we put whole clusters in on top of that um, used some dry ice for a little extra co2 to kind of get the oxygen out of the fermenter and kind of let it rip for about a week and a half so i'd open it up and look at it and throw a little more co2 in every day or two um, but we were letting that that intracellular that carbonic uh, maceration happen and there's a whole unique set of flavor and aroma compounds that result from that type of uh, it's not technically a fermentation but but from that type of fermentation um, and then after that point I hopped in to start stomping in the, the rest of the grapes and I broke through the cap and I was in like hip deep juice 
So I realized I did not need to be in there. I, I hopped out and we actually just kind of manually punched down, gently punched down the grapes so that the juice could kind of flow between the bunches. And we did those gentle punch downs two times a day for the next week and a half. And then we pressed into older barrels. Um, this made two punchins and two bariques. So a punchin is twice the size of a barrique. It's 500 liters. It was in those barrels for eight months. And we pressed back, or sorry, we racked back. We moved the wine back into a stainless steel tank. And it was at that point that we did our first kind of winemaking addition. We added sulfur at that point. We added somewhere around 15 to 20 parts per million. Um, it was in stainless steel for a month before bottling. And the main reason for that sulfur addition at the end is to prepare the wine for the bottling line, which is kind of the roughest day in the wine's life. Um, and yeah, it was bottled in, in early June. So we've got we're creeping up on a year of bottle age and uh, and some some small hints of development starting to peek through in the wine. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's interesting because we've tasted this wine the last three days in a row uh, constantly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've basically been tasting it every hour for the last three days. And uh, it's so fun to taste this wine again this morning or this afternoon. It's 3.30 right now, not morning anymore, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and it's got this totally different characteristic today, I find. Uh, it's got this really like true Campari note to it that yeah. I haven't gotten it quite that specifically before. And then this thing that is like obviously not coming from oak, but that I've never really gotten from fruit before, which is this like vanilla bean note underneath that's just sort of mingling with everything that I'm like, I don't remember these characteristics in the last two days, but that's the fun thing about wine is that, you know, depending on your own personal experience that day and on the wine's personal experience, uh, you know, you're going to end up with a sort of a different creature each day. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting phenomenon, right? So we tasted this rosé before the Gamay. We've never tasted this wine before the Gamay before. And so maybe it sets our palates up in a certain mm -hmm. way because I'm catching some of those same flavors. I'm like you, I'm not a huge tasting note guy. In fact, I refuse to, to write tasting notes for my wines for our customers because um, I think it insults their intelligence, frankly, mm -hmm. and insults their abilities to put something in their mouth and, and know what that is, which for I sure. think all of our customers are capable of doing. Yeah. <laughs> so whenever my wife needs tasting notes for, for some communication, she's kind of forced to pull them from uh, a critic or collaborator that, that has been kind enough to, to, to share with us. Um, mm -hmm. But I am getting a bit of those same notes. I'm getting a little bit of an orange peel note there mm -hmm. that's not... I've gotten it a few times in this wine, but yep. not, not always. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, for me, this wine is... A lot about its its acidity yeah. uh, and its freshness. Um, we're packing in an amount of acidity that you don't normally see in a red wine. That is more mm. commonly seen in in really crisp, high acid whites, and um, that definitely to me influences you know what it pairs well with too. And yeah, I already, you already forecasted that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's salmon, but it's salmon with a bit of a different. Um, flavor profile than the salmon that, that you mentioned. So yeah. I, I, again, I often kind of go to that, I guess we'll have to call it Pacific Northwest because it's a mm -hmm. bit Canadian, but it's got a lot of Asian influences. So I'm using, you know, miso and hoisin and sesame oil, but I'm also using a bit of maple syrup and garlic and I'm glazing my salmon and then I'm cooking it like really medium rare. And that is one of my favorite things to have yeah. is, is that dish with, with this wine. Definitely. A little pea puree on the side, mm. which I think kind of pops with 
lots of butter, lots of lemon, kind of pops with some of the herbaceous and, and stemmy notes in this wine as well, because certainly yeah. that's something worth knowing is that the, the stem character is evident on this wine, and some people like that. I love it. Yeah. Uh, some people not as big a fan of, yeah. of stem character. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, based on sort of the people that I know in the wine club, which is a, a high percentage of the people in the wine club, actually, uh, I think that they're going to be pretty enthusiastic about this stylistically i think uh a lot of them are fans of these sort of lighter brighter reds that sort of cross boundaries um you know in the glass this is not much darker than the rosé no. that we just had so it's interesting that you know this spent three weeks on skins versus the rosé spent zero days on skins and uh yet they've resulted in in again very comparable colors not the same color but comparable at least um more in common than not in common i suppose yeah. And then aromatically and texturally, they're they're completely not the antithesis of one another, but they are. They, it would be hard to be more different within with two things being the same color and tasting yeah. so differently. I guess um, I get more viscosity on the on the rosé and, and more linearity yes. uh, on on the gamay, which is the yeah. reverse of what the colors would would lead you to yes. think. Yeah, exactly. No, I I feel the same way for sure. Um, so. Maybe this gives us a good opportunity to talk a little bit more about uh, rigor and whimsy as a, as a whole and, and talk about sort of the project and, and where you uh, foresee it going. You, you guys alluded to the fact that you planted a vineyard and you can maybe talk a little bit about um, about that and sort of what the goal is with, with owning your own vineyard and, and why that's important to you guys. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, maybe to, to back up just a little bit, you know, when the Okanagan right now, we're seeing kind of a, a boom phase. Um, a lot of new wineries opening up there's a lot of exciting things happening actually a lot of really good young winemakers getting started and and also some big money projects and consolidation at, at the high end too we're seeing like the the big players the wines the wines we wouldn't see in your wine club um those companies are buying up land and buying buying brands we saw some huge deals going through in the last couple of years and all of that puts a lot of pressure on vineyard land great prices are skyrocketing um, availability um, is is almost nil you know I, I i sometimes joke with my colleagues like you know you can have the great variety you want you can have the farming practices you want or you can have the price you want and you get to pick one of those. <laughs> and so that Sorry. was, you know, that's with the Gamay. Like, we really wanted Gamay. So we got Gamay, but we maybe didn't get those other two things, right? Yeah. Um, so one of the ways to to have some stability in our, in our wine production and have some control over the varieties and the farming practices is to, to buy and plant. Um, so we bought a five-acre parcel in Okanagan Falls. Um, actually, some interesting similarities between that vineyard site and, and, and the vineyard site where this Gamay came from. It's also next to uh, this big granitic outcropping called Peach Cliff. So again, we've got some decomposing granite. We've got actually more clay in our home vineyard soils. Um, we're on a, a soil type called gray luvasol, which is extremely rare in the Okanagan. It's got one of the highest clay components, I think, of any of the soil formations that are viticulturally viable um, in the Okanagan. Um, and the farming philosophy for us is, 
it's an, it's emerging, it's iterative, but so far what we've done is we've we've really tried not to disturb the soil as much as possible. When we took on this site, um, it was a native vegetation, which is we're a semi-arid scrub steppe. There's a lot of antelope grass, there's a lot of sagebrush, so we did have to remove those those more mature woody plants. But everything that was a weed, um, everything that was low low cover, we kept. And as we put in our trellis and our plants, all we did was um, auger holes where something needed to go, but we didn't disturb the rest of the, the soil. Um, you know, my wife has a PhD in microbiology and, and we have a lot of respect for the microbiome of the soil and for what that means for the, the vitality of, of the land. And so we've done as little as possible so far. When we planted, we used like a quarter cup scoop of blood meal and bone meal and like a shovel full of, um, of a peat soil with a mycorrhizal fung fungus in it. Fun fungi. <laughs> um, and so, and that, so that was in year one. And then since then we've just watered. Mm -hmm. um, we will eventually start a compost program for sure. But right now we want to try and manage that signal to noise ratio. We really want to understand like what this site is capable of on its own. And so we've brought as few inputs as possible to that so that we can try and understand like how will the plants respond to this site. Um, so far so good mm -hmm. uh we'll we're on track you know we're third leaf so we're on track to get our first although much smaller crop our first crop in this 2020 vintage and it's really exciting for us uh you know, we're going to finally get to see uh, oh, what, what this site has to offer and you know I, I should probably mention like my neighbors um well, big reason why we chose to to plant in this area we are right next door to synchromesh um, Stormhaven Vineyard, uh, which is just insanely good Riesling grown on that site, and also a, a very small block, but really solid Pinot Noir. And then across the road, uh, Myers Family Vineyards, um, in my opinion, uh, the best Pinot is being grown on, off that vineyard in the Okanagan. And so those were two wines that really inspired confidence in us that this is a site um, that could do something special that the soil and actually the airflow in mm -hmm. that area, there's huge diurnal swings and there's great airflow because we're in a narrow part of the valley. So these factors really, really speak to the fruit that, or, or, or drive what the fruit says um, when it's in, in the bottle. Um, so yeah, we've got about equal parts Shannon and Gamay on that site. Um, and, and we're, we're ready to go for 2020. And from a farming perspective, the other, cool news we haven't really spoken about much or debuted much but um just a little bit up the valley from us there's a, a pretty unreal vineyard called god's mountain vineyard and as of march pruning time um, we're taking on a 20-year lease to farm that vineyard and get that fruit and it's currently planted um four acres planted three acres to riesling and one acre to gewurz and so it's uh it needs a bit of love. It's like a small rehab project there. It's older vines, about 30 years old, organically farmed, so we can keep that going. Um, so yeah, over time, you know, we'll be able to um, move towards vineyards that are philosophically aligned with, with our farming practices and leave behind some of those vineyards that, that don't meet that criteria. Mm -hmm. But it's, 
you know, I'd say it's probably, we're about five years in from a business perspective and we're four years in from a winemaking perspective. And I think it's probably going to be a seven to 10 year process to, to get that where we want it to be. For sure. Nice. Um, other things that are, that are in the range of rigor and whimsy that we have in the province currently or will have in the province uh, over the course of the next week, uh, we'll have a pet nut. Uh, so sparkling wine from from Costa, which will be uh, on the shelves, I guess, in, in about three weeks' time, so it'll, it'll be hitting the shelf. Uh, we have a fresh order of Flux Capacitor, um, which is his uh, sort of skin-fermented, um, multi-grape, I don't amber, know, extravaganza. Amber, amber wine. Yeah, amber yeah. wine. Um, so we are getting restock of that because we sold it out way faster than we thought we would because people are incredibly enthusiastic about how delicious it is. Uh, it doesn't help that the packaging's, uh, you know, it's definitely beautiful as well. So that definitely, uh, <laughs> you shout know, encourages out, Shout people. out to Jody on that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, as well as uh, some of sort of the the flagship amber wine, which is a, a Pinot Blanc um, that sees extended skin contact. Um, definitely amber wine a la Old World um, in the sense that it's quite structured, quite powerful, has a lot of longevity. I think that that wine uh, will improve for at least a decade. Like, yeah. I don't know. I'm pretty confident about that statement, despite having only seen two vintages of it. Um, yeah, and the, the 2017 is even more structured than the, than the mm-hmm. 2016. And it's maybe just starting to hit its stride in bottle right now after yeah. almost a year in bottle. Mm-hmm. Um and certainly, it's a wine that you can decant for really long periods of time. I mean, like 24 hours in a decanter doesn't makes it more drinkable right now. There's flavors that are coming out after that time in decanter, and the texture is smooth. So, I'm I'm on the same same wavelength. I think it's 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 good now. Uh, I think it has the capacity for greatness in the future. Yeah, definitely. So if you uh you know, sort of identify with any of the things that, that Costa has said, uh, you want to support their winery, definitely check out those wines as well. Um, if you need help tracking them down, feel free to send us a little note, either via Instagram or email or whichever methodology. Telekinesis, if that's within your abilities, please send me telekinetic notes about where to find, uh, where to find rigor and whimsy wines. Um, cool. So we'll move on to our, uh, last wine here in the wine club. We're doing a second red here. Um, so this is coming from Quinta uh, da Boa Vista. Um, this one is uh, from Portugal. Uh, I don't believe we've ever had a wine from Portugal in the wine club before, which is kind of tragic uh, because I'm a huge supporter of Portuguese wines in general. It's just finding ones that fit within the ethos of the wine club is a little bit difficult. Um, There's a lot of producers that are starting to head that direction and have started to head that direction over the last five years, but finding them on our market has proved a little bit difficult. Um, Finally, we're at a point when we can uh, actually include one in the, uh, in the lineup. Um, So this is coming from the Dow. The Dow is a region that I've always really identified with um, because uh, it's sort of the unsung hero of super complex wine in, in Portugal for me. Everybody always uh, talks about the vineyards uh, further north in the Douro 
Valley, which is where port comes from, but also a lot of really magnificent dry reds and, and whites as well. And they sort of get all the hype because that's where a lot of the money is. Versus in the Dow, which is only a little bit further south, um, it's, it's a completely different world uh, from a vineyard perspective. Um, you have these super high elevations, you have granite outcroppings, um, it's challenging to grow there. Um, it's a, there's a little bit more moisture than you'd expect uh, in the, than in the Duro Valley. Um, but all these things result in these incredibly complex wines, in my opinion. Um, and now we're starting to see, you know, this version of wine, which is more, um, you know, I hate to use the terminology glue glue in this particular case, but the idea is to make a wine that's drinkable because the other wines produced in this region tend to be for long-term aging or uh, like Vain de Garde, so just more serious wines versus this is uh, their attempt at making something more playful, more joyous. Uh, so this is made um, mostly from uh, Jean. Uh, I hope I get the pronunciation of this right because my Portuguese is actually non-existent. So I'm, I'm literally just reading this word as if it's English. Um, and then Triga Nacional. Um, Triga Nacional is, is, is basically like the big shot grape of, of uh, Portugal um, versus Jan, I believe is actually Mentia. Uh, so a grape that you would see in Northern Spain a little bit, makes these sort of bright, fresh, peppery wines that are somewhere between Pinot Noir and Syrah stylistically for me uh, versus Triga Nacional. I, in blind tastings, often get it confused with, uh, with either Malbec or Cabernet Sauvignon because it's usually very dark fruited, it's very powerful. So you just mix two things from the opposite end of the spectrum together for this wine to make something potentially more, uh, more well-rounded. Um, this is, uh, they're using carbonic maceration for this as well. Uh, so very similar to the way that uh, Costa was making this wine, his wines but this only sees uh, eight to 10 days on skins versus Casas is, is literally double that, um, a little bit more than double that. And so this is about trying not to extract very much because those grapes have super thick skins, are ultra flavorful versus Gamay is way more delicate. So you need a little bit more time on skins to actually sort of get all the nuance um, and get the structure out of it. So, you know, similar winemaking styles, but with sort of two different base products, I suppose. Um, then this is aged in tank for six months um, and then bottled, unfined, unfiltered, um, super low levels of sulfur. They only used, um, I believe, 25 parts per million for this particular bottling. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. First opportunity to get to share some, uh, some Portuguese wine with everybody. Thoughts? Cool wine changes yeah. even in the few minutes we've had it in the glass. It's already kind of a chameleon. It's changing for me. It like started out pretty like I'm gonna say savage, but I mean that as a compliment, like in a good way. Yeah. Like it was really animal mm -hmm. and wild, and now it's the fruits starting to come through for me now. Which like yeah. it was there was the first like thirty seconds to a minute there was like no fruit at all. In the yeah, more like, like rocky and like scrub kind of, you know, brush kind of quality. Yeah, now it's turning brambly and yeah. And there's more fruit. And there's way more fruit on the palate than the nose for me still. Mm -hmm. Um really cool wine. Love the like slightly cloudy color. Yeah, just a just a touch turbid and yeah. Um yeah, for me this wine really shows off the soil. It's really got that granitic quality. Mm. I find that 
wines grown on granite soils tend to have a lot in common with one another. I, I feel like it's the soil type that has the most distinctive notes for me. Um, they always almost have this sort of gunpowdery quality to them. Uh, they almost always have this uh, like literal crushed granite thing, which I, I know is impossible from a uh, physiological perspective for the grapes to actually <laughs> uptake any of the actual granite into themselves <laughs> and then put that into grapes, which end up in this wine. But having visited vine vineyards with crushed granite or even just like gone with my dad to get a granite countertop at one point or another, it's like that smell of crushed rock. Like it's very much, mm. you know, both in, in the nose, but I, I, even more on the back of the palate for me. That's where I usually get the texture of, of granitic soils for me. I think the tannin texture is worth talking about too. There are mm -hmm. like these powdery fine tannins in here mm -hmm. and it's like they're abundant there's quite a few of them but they are just gentle like baby kitten tannins like they're so totally. they're really nice yeah yeah it's super fun wine um this is imported uh not by us but by um our friend ryan parnes ryan parnes was very sad that he couldn't be on the podcast today ryan parnes is the most passionate human being i've ever probably met in my entire life and he would love to scream about this wine at the top of his lungs at full speed for as long as humanly possible. Um, he actually has been over there to this vineyard to assist with harvest, uh, which is pretty cool knowing that uh, some Calgarians have been over there. Uh, I believe one of the employees from Vine Arts also participated in uh, harvest. So uh, shout out to sort of this, uh, you know, trans-oceanic, uh, you know, collaboration between Calgary, Alberta, and uh, and the Dow in Portugal. So it's cool to have those connections here. Um, every month we try and include a wine from a different importer because, you know, we kind of get locked in our own minds about what we like, and we can only import so many producers in any given year. So we, we don't want repeats. So um, this month we figured we'd, uh, you know, support him a little bit and, and get his wines out there. Um, he has a couple other really amazing producers in his portfolio, as well as other wines um, from Quinta de Bo Boa Vista, which I still can't pronounce for some strange reason. Not a strange reason. I don't speak Portuguese, so it's, it's a very logical reason for me not to be able to pronounce it. Um, but yeah, if you're on the hunt from, for other wines from him, um, his uh, little agency is called uh, PNW, so Pacific Northwest, developing a lisp as I... <laughs> as this thing goes on. I will help you with your Portuguese or at least Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, Minth, yeah. Um but yeah, so if, if you're on the hunt for other wines, definitely check out his portfolio as well. Um for me for, for pairing perspective on this, this is reminding me very much of, of Northern Rhone Syrah in a sense. It's reminding me of, of uh more austere versions of Cab Franc. Um so for me, like game meats are kind of mm. uh, on the table very much, like um, especially game fowl, you know, you think of things like the, the pigeon we had the other night. Yeah. I think this is like a very reasonable squab pairing, you know, we talked about yeah, more, more squab, please. Yeah. And more squab <laughs> in all of our lives. Um, yeah, I'd like it to, the meat to be a bit smoky, like, a, you know, like, like over charcoal or over wood, like game meats cooked in a rustic kind of fashion that, that would, that would be a kick-ass pairing with this wine certainly mm -hmm. and even over the the last five minutes or so this wine has gone full 360 and is now just like so juicy so so energetic so it's 
always um, cool when the wine doesn't stay the same in your glass. Mm-hmm. More yeah. drinking pleasure. Yeah, definitely. Um, the other thing that I want to shout out with this wine is that Portugal is notoriously underpriced, which is one of the reasons why I like supporting the winemakers, especially the ones releasing wines at sort of these moderate price points where you're still um, paying them an appropriate amount to be able to do the farming that they have to um, and not undercutting the farmers, but at the same time still reaping the benefits of, of uh, you know, the fact that they can produce wines for um, really great prices. So this is, you know, sitting somewhere around $24 retail. Uh, which I just think is is insane for a wine of this quality and farming level. Killer deal. Yeah. And again, under 500 cases produced, so it won't be around for long either. So it's like take advantage of this deal while you can. Uh, I know all the shops that we deal with do a case discount, so if you guys need a new house wine, this is definitely a, a pretty easy candidate for, for that, I would say. Um, cool. Any, any closing remarks or uh, anything just, uh, you want to add? I'd like to say thanks to... To you two, to Juice, for, for supporting us and repping us here in Calgary. And, um, you know, also hope all of you folks in the wine club uh, enjoy this trio. It's a, they're actually, it's an, it's an interesting little uh, makeshift family of wines. They, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a bit of a through line between, between these three lines. So it should be a really interesting pack. And I hope, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to send me an email. My email address is eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. Uh, and we'll be talking to you roughly a month from now. Thanks. Keep these